Hello, friends, and welcome to the Deeper Daily Podcast for the 31st day of January. As the last day of every month, this is the essay edition for January, and in the month year of 2023, we are looking at the stories in the book of Mark from where we are in our day-to-day journey on the DDP. This essay is also available at paulwhiteministries.com in print form. Search for our Deeper Daily Podcasts essay editions. And now, from January 2023. This month, we take a close look at a story found in Mark chapter 2 of Jesus healing the paralytic man. The most famous feature of this story is from verse 4, where the four men carrying their friend to Jesus remove the roof and lower him into the room. Undaunted by the crowd and the impossibility of getting to Jesus, these four men join the ranks of Zacchaeus and the woman with the issue of blood. Lack of height, disease of body, and a house full of people will not stop the desperate. The reason the roof removal verse is so powerful is only in part to the physicality of their efforts. The roofs of homes in the Middle East of the first century were flat and made of branches and dried clay held up by wooden beams. To enter through the roof required only a bit of digging and moving, unlike the near demolition that such an action would require on a modern home. The other reason for the power of this moment is that it is being done by the friends of the paralytic man. Their love and concern for their friend or family member is what drives them to such desperation, and it is the faith of these friends that makes the story even more important. The pivotal moment in the story is in verse 5, when we encounter a double whammy. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. The first shock is that Jesus saw their faith and not the faith of the paralytic man. And the second shock is that he forgoes healing, which is why they are there, and offers instead forgiveness of sins. Let us tackle these one at a time and in order of their appearance. Jesus saw the faith of the four men and then turned to the paralytic man. We learn a lot from what is said and from what is left unsaid. What is said is that the faith of our friends is valuable, honorable, and important. What is left unsaid is that the paralytic man is never acknowledged for his faith and will not be challenged until he is told to take up his bed and walk. Perhaps that unsaid thing includes the strong reality that the paralytic man had tried to talk his friends out of this whole thing. Maybe he didn't believe at all. Maybe he was full of doubts, criticism, and cynicism. We do not know because it is unsaid, but what we do know is that none of that mattered because of the faith of his friends. The faith of our friends and family cannot be understated. More than once, Jesus was approached by fathers, mothers, and even overlords who were petitioning him on behalf of others. In none of those encounters does Jesus say to the supplicant, where's the person who needs healed and what do they think of all this? Sometimes he converses until he gets more information, like with the Syrophoenician woman. Sometimes he encourages them to simply believe and not worry about their unbelief, like the case of the father of the demon-possessed boy. Other times he honors the strength of their faith, like the centurion. But in every case, it is the faith of the other, not the sick or the possessed, that makes the difference. Paul seems to share this viewpoint in his letter to the Corinthians. In a passage from chapter 7 that has baffled scholars for centuries, 
Paul tells them that if they have a spouse that is an unbeliever and the spouse is content to live with them as they practice their faith, great, because the unbeliever is made holy by the spouse. His proof is that if this were not the case, the children would be unclean. This is a striking affirmation of the unusual character of the home in which at least one parent is a believer. In Old Testament language, the whole family is regarded as being in covenant with God. This passage is the impetus for Reformed theology as the rationale behind infant baptism. Whatever Paul's real intent behind this passage might be, it seems to line up with Jesus' treatment of the faith of the four men. They believed And that was good enough. Four chapters later, Paul gives instructions for sharing the Lord's Supper. Among the instructions, Paul encouraged the believers to wait on one another before partaking, as the very receiving of the meal was to be done as a sign of unity. Just as the table of the Lord held a Judas, the table we partake of in the church is full of sinners. In fact, there is no room in communion for the sinless. One must ask why partaking together was so important to Paul. Contextually, it unified the rich and the poor as it forced everyone to eat at the same table, and perhaps that tells us a lot about the body and the blood as being received on level ground. No one is better than anyone else. I think he wants them to wait because they are part of the body, and what one person lacks is made up for in another person's abundance. In other words, we partake together because someone else brings faith to the table where I bring doubt. The second shocking aspect of Mark 2.5 is, Son, your sins are forgiven. If you aren't shocked, that's because you're viewing it from the other side of the resurrection. And the heartbeat of your faith is that Jesus has forgiven you of your sins by the shedding of his blood on the cross. But in Mark 2, none of that has happened. Jesus is a guy from Nazareth who's done a few miracles. But to the audience of that day, he no more has the right to forgive someone of their sins than does anyone else in the crowd. The scribes took umbrage, as they should. They are scribes, and scribes copied the sacred texts, and they know those texts better than anyone else. They knew that Exodus declared that God could clear the guilty and forgive transgressions, and that Isaiah said this belonged to the Lord. For Jesus to offer forgiveness of sins was, according to their understanding of Scripture, blasphemy. But I want you to forget that for a moment. Push aside how they felt and what Scriptures they were using, and ask yourself one thing that is shockingly easy to overlook right here. How can this man be forgiven of his sins without confession, repentance, and maybe most importantly, without the shedding of blood? I'm asking these things from a Christian perspective, for they constitute the formulas that we adhere to in the formation of our salvation theology. We confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead. We confess our sins and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We repent and are baptized for the remission of sins. The blood has been shed for us and applied to our lives, and in it we have obtained redemption, forgiveness of sins. I just used snippets of a lot of different verses to give an overview of what the process looks like. The paralytic man did none of these. And be careful with the, well, he was on the other side of the cross, so those things weren't available argument. In his world, 
Admission to the family of God came through bloodline sealed with physical circumcision. Forgiveness of sins was seen as God's response to our sacrifice, be it one of blood or commitment or honor. The Hebrew Bible teaches that forgiveness of sins was available through prayer and repentance, as in the cases of Jonah and Esther. But that definition is often given by Judaism in response to the fall of the sacrificial temple system. Modern Judaism teaches repentance, prayer, and the doing of good deeds. But our paralytic man was living in temple Judaism, and blood was vital. Hebrews repeats a statement from Leviticus that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So which is it? Can the paralytic man be forgiven his sins without the shedding of blood? If the answer is no, then Jesus cannot forgive him until after he has died on the cross. Well, even the cross belies this fact. As Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he has not yet finished the work. We need to understand that the terminology for forgiveness and remission is often what is tripping us up. These terms are sometimes interchangeable but hold multiple meanings. To be forgiven can be both a done deal on the part of God and an unclaimed gift on our part. He has forgiven whether we receive it or not. We're not less forgiven because we do not receive, but we walk only in what we know. And thus we retain the knowledge of our own sin and live beneath the condemnation. When Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to his disciples, he told them that whoever's sins they retain, they are retained, and whoever's sins are remitted, they are remitted. Did this mean the disciples had the power to forgive or deny forgiveness? No, that power is the Lord's. But it did mean for them, and it does mean for us, that we can release people from guilt and condemnation, or we can hold their sins over them and make them constantly aware. God does not hold man's sins against them. See 2 Corinthians 5.19. But we often do. We need to stop it. We have the power to stop it if we choose to use it. That is the real power of the Holy Spirit. Without confession and without repentance and without blood, Jesus forgave the man of his sins because only Jesus, he who was one with the Father, can do so. The blood is not required to appease God, The blood is required to appease us. We live in a blood-for-blood system, and the sacrifices were visible evidence to us that a death had been exacted. By the time of Isaiah, God had enough of them and said, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Isaiah 1.11 To prove to the scribes that he indeed did have the authority to forgive sins, Jesus turns to the paralytic man and for the first time challenges his faith. Rise, take up your bed, and go home. The paralytic man does not have to rise. He can keep right on laying there. This is his opportunity to show his own faith in Jesus. And I think he rises not only because he wants to walk, but because he has been forgiven of whatever it was that put him there in the first place. We bring our entire lives with us when we walk into the room. Everything we have experienced and done is in there somewhere, shaping us and making us what we are. The man entered paralyzed and received forgiveness of sins. Jesus did not use him as some test case against the scribes to prove his own power. The man needed forgiveness of sins, and he needed it first. His sin was his life, and he brought it with him when they lowered him into the room. Once he could receive forgiveness, he could walk. 
What is easier, Jesus asked, to say you are forgiven or to say, take up your bed? It is surely easier to say you're forgiven, but to actually be forgiven proves that everything else is easy. There is a lot to take away from this amazing story, and I'm sure I have left a lot undone. For purposes of review, and perhaps to make it easier to retain one singular thing from this story, let me hit five highlights in short, digestible fashion. Number one, sometimes you need help. You cannot get to where you need to go unless you let someone else carry you, believe in you, believe for you, and tear off a roof or two on your behalf. Doing this alone is not noble. You are part of a group. Number two, your faith is powerful, so powerful that it can even make up for the deficiency of your neighbor, your friend, your kids, or your spouse. Feed your faith. Others need it as much as you, maybe even more. Number three, receive forgiveness of sins, even if you think you do not deserve it, or you have not been through the proper steps. His blood was shed to convince you to stop shedding your own. Number four, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Do something with this forgiveness. Make it count. Do not be paralyzed by fear, anxiety, or anything else for one second longer than you need to. And number five, someone will always call you names and they will do it while quoting scripture. The scribes did it to Jesus. Know who you are and know who you belong to. Everyone is a heretic to someone, but not everyone really lives. I hope you have enjoyed this little journey. Grace to you.